As we prepare for a new year, a new chapter in our lives, it's my guess that many of us, most of us maybe, make some type of goals and, and resolutions. Some of us take them very serious and try really hard. Others may go uh, for a little while and, and then it fizzles out, maybe even by, by late January or February. Um, and others of us may make them, but we never even really get started because we kick it on down the road of, I'll start after the college football playoff or after the Super Bowl or after this birthday or this big event. And we, we kick it down the road until finally it becomes a distant memory. The most common resolutions are to save money, to exercise more, to eat healthier, to lose weight, to drink less, to, less, to spend less time on social media. I shared with our men's class this summer about in, in 1997, I made 20 goals. And I called it 20 resolutions for 1997. Shortly after making them, I kind of put it aside and went on my way. And in December of that year, I found those goals. I read through them. I marked out a couple. Turned that seven into an eight and said 18 resolutions for 1998. (laughs) You see, I had big dreams for a better me at the end of the year. But I wasn't focused enough or disciplined enough or maybe smart enough to realize that big results require a series of single choices and small actions. Big results require small actions. We think about where we'd like to be at the end of the year, but are we willing to take the baby steps that it takes to get there, to make those decisions one day at a time? If we want to become more healthy at the end of 2024 or to lose weight, the way that that starts is by making one choice at lunch, Today, I'm going to eat healthy. Or if we want to save X amount of money or or become debt-free by the end of the year, it starts by choosing not to spend our time browsing Amazon with nothing to do. One of my goals is to become a better golfer at the end of the year. But that doesn't happen simply because I got new clubs and I hope to be. It'll happen because I spend time practicing. For many of us, we have some serious resolutions Maybe it's stopping some type of an addiction. Well, that's great to think big, but we got to act small. We achieve that by working one day at a time to admit that we have a problem or to find an accountability partner. Think big, but act small. On that note, it reminds me of one of my favorite stories that I've told to this church before, but uh, forgive me, I'm going to share it one more time. It's the story of Easy Eddie. You see, Eddie was successful beyond his wildest dreams. He, lived, he was a lawyer. He lived in a gated community in suburban Chicago. He drove a nice car. He went on great vacations. He had servants that took care of his quarters. Easy Eddie was successful, but Easy Eddie had a problem. You see, he was a lawyer, but he only had one client, and that client was Al Capone, America's most wanted. And he had another problem. He had a son that looked up to him and wanted to be like his dad. You see, Eddie, Easy Eddie, could have gone on and just thought big and hoped everything would work okay. But instead, he chose to take a single small action and turned state's evidence against Al Capone in hopes that his son could live a better life than he did, in hope that his action would would bring a a terrible criminal off the streets, and it did. But see, he was in too deep. 
because doing the right thing gave a hope and a future to Eddie's son, but it, and it greatly impacted the course of his life, but doing the right thing also cost Easy Eddie his life. You see, Eddie reaped what he had, shown, what he had sown by taking on the mafia as a client, and he would die in machine gun fire in the streets of Chicago several, years, several months later. But because of his action, his son would go on to have a better life and, and would, would bless the world. When the police emptied out Easy Eddie's pockets, they found a rosary and a poem that he had clipped from a magazine. The poem read, The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop. Now is the only time you own. Live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in time, for the clock may soon be still. You see, I didn't say that baby steps or or single actions were easy, but I said big results require small actions. One small action, one small decision at a time. And it's my hope this morning that as we think about our resolutions and, and our goals for the new year, that many of them are of a spiritual nature as well. To spend more time in God's word, to spend more time in prayer, to give more of our income to the Lord's work, to commit scripture to memory so that we'll be prepared to face temptation, to surrender our will to the Father's. And hopefully each of us also has a goal to participate in the greatest story ever told and to share our faith with a family member or a friend or a coworker. You see, that last goal, though, is pretty intimidating to us because we don't think that we're equipped to share our faith. But I want to remind us all that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those he calls. And he has called all of us who know him to live and to share the hope that we have found in him with the world around us. On that note this morning, I I want us to take a quick look at Acts chapter 16. Just as we're preparing for a new chapter of life, this is the uh, the start of a new chapter for the Apostle Paul, a period known as his second missionary journey. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Acts 16 or you can read along. But first, I want you to know that that Paul and Barnabas had, had severed their partnership from the first missionary journey over a dispute about taking John Mark. But even though they severed their, severed their partnership, they maintained their friendship, as we'll see from Paul in, in other letters when he refers to Barnabas. And we also see that Paul reconciled with John Mark and talks about him affectionately in three, uh, three others of his letters. But Paul finds a new partner, another Jewish man named Silas. They go to Derby and Lystra where he, to strengthen the churches where he meets a young man named Timothy. And he's so impressed by him that he invites Timothy to come along and be their assistant. He refers to Timothy 17 times throughout his letters and even addresses two of them directly to him. He calls him his true son in the faith. So Paul's missionary journey, the second one, starts out great. But then let's pick up the story in in, in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight, and, and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. You see, they, they went throughout the region, but they were prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word of God in the province of Asia. Then they came to the border of Mysia and tried to enter Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit would not allow them to do so to enter there either. So they passed by Mysia and they went down to Troas. It's important for us to see that Paul had these plans and these ideas, but he goes to his third choice, at least his third choice, to Troas. You see, the Holy Spirit had told him no on his first two choices. We don't know how he did that, how the the Spirit did that, whether it was through a word of prophecy, an inward speaking and conviction, or circumstances. But whatever the reason, the Holy Spirit forbade Paul from doing something that we consider good preaching the good news to the people there who needed to hear it. Important for us to know that sometimes God says no to good things so that he may say yes to better things. Isaiah 55 tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. And Paul, for whatever reason, at this time, was not the right person or at the right place at that time. Ephesus would have to wait. wait. Perhaps the Holy Spirit said no to Paul through an illness. Because as we see that when he goes to Troas, he, uh, he meets Dr. Luke, the physician. And you see in verse 10 of that passage, where it says, they did this, they did that. In verse 10, the pronoun changes to we. Paul had picked up Luke in Troas. He has this vision of a man in Macedonia and concludes that God wanted him to preach the gospel to them. You see, the Holy Spirit can guide us by closed doors in the same way he can guide us through open doors. But sometimes we refuse to take no for an answer, and we fail to see those closed doors as the answer. So my prayer for us this morning is that we may gain, we may grow to be in tune with the Spirit like Paul was, and to know when it is him guiding us. And then may we lay down our will so that God's will be done, just like Paul did. And see, because the, Paul, because the Spirit had blocked his first two choices, Paul moved from going into Asia to going into Europe. As far as we know, that this is the first time the gospel entered the continent of Europe. Paul wanted a few cities, but God wanted a continent. And after saying no two times, God gave Paul the opportunity to win that continent for Jesus Christ. He also gave him a personal doctor to travel with him who would go on to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts that we're reading this morning. So the story picks up in Philippi. Philippi was actually a Roman colony that was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip. It was a site where the armies of Mark Antony and Octavius defeated Brutus and Cassius in the Second Roman Civil War. So many of the soldiers in 42 BC, so many of the soldiers actually made that their home and stayed there. We'll meet one in just a bit. In Acts 16, beginning in verse 13, we see, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. 
You see, Paul's custom was to start in the synagogue. When he would go into a new city, he would go on the Sabbath to the synagogue, and he would teach the Jews first before moving out into the community and teaching the Gentiles. But there was no synagogue in Philippi because in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men. Philippi didn't. And it would have been easy for Paul to have rationalized that nothing good was going to come of that place. There weren't even any Jewish men for him to start with some common ground. There wasn't a critical mass to start a Bible study. I felt this way earlier this semester when I was introduced to an SMU student uh, through a, a mutual friend. And we went and we played golf together. And in the course of playing golf, I figured out that this guy was, one, he was a really good golfer, but he was also really intelligent. And he told me that he was agnostic. And he asked me all sorts of theological questions. Well, I answered as best I could, and, and then uh, I ended up uh, getting a book to him. And I told him to, to read this book, More Than a Carpenter, and then to call me, and, and I would buy him lunch, and we would talk more. Well, wouldn't you know it, like a week later, he had already read the book. He, he calls me, and he says, I'm ready for that lunch. On the way there, I was so nervous. In fact, honestly, I said, I wish Mike Armour were here to go with me to answer these questions that this guy's about to get me. Or Rob or Reed Wide or, or Al Garrett or somebody who, who knows more about apologetics and who, who would be more equipped to answer. But I forgot. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those he calls. And for whatever reason, he called me to interact with this young man. And so we had an incredible lunch. And even though I'm not an intellectual like this guy, um, the answers I gave him satisfied him enough to continue searching. We're continuing our relationship, and I'm confident that one day he will become a believer. Paul goes on. When they don't have a synagogue, usually they would go out by the river, and that's where people would gather for a place of prayer. So he goes, and, and there's not even any men there. It's just a, a group of women. And he begins to teach them. And during the time that he's preaching, he converts Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple, which in, in the ancient world was, uh, uh, a, it was a very valued, luxurious product that you created the dye by getting from uh, drop by drop from shellfish. Um, she was a wealthy businesswoman, well-connected. And she becomes a believer in the message that Paul had for her. And then she demands that Paul and his companions stay with her. Hospitality immediately is seen upon her conversion. She was a great convert for, for this to be the first person uh, that she converted uh, and, and, and to establish this new church because she had a big house. She was probably well-connected with her business uh, things. She was at the top of the social structure. But then we see the next person impacted by the gospel is at the complete other end of the spectrum. The lowest rung of the ladder, a slave girl, an indentured slave that was, that was uh, occupied by a demonic force, and she was able to predict the future. This demon-possessed girl followed, followed, Saul and, and, or followed Paul and Silas around for several days, saying, These men are servants of the Most High, and they will tell you how to be saved. Well, Paul didn't want a demon doing his advertising for him. And it says, in most of your texts, it probably says he became annoyed. That word could actually be translated grieved or troubled. And so in the name of Jesus, he commands that demon to come out. Her owners become furious because this was their source of income. She could tell the future and it made money for her. They didn't care that she was delivered. They cared that their source of income had lost. 
So they take them, they take uh, Paul and Silas before the officials. They lie about their preaching and say that they're teaching unlawful uh, uh, habits or, or practices for the Romans to accept. The crowd joins in on the attack, and the magistrates order Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods. It says that they were severely flogged, and they were thrown into the inner sanctum of a prison. We don't know anything more about the slave girl, but I certainly would like to think that as Jesus commanded that, that uh, demon to come out of her, he moved into her heart. And then we see the next thing is they're in prison. In Acts 16, verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. None of us, none of us want to go through difficult times. But the truth is, all of us do. And we will continue to do so as long as we live or until Jesus comes back. And we must realize that the greatest witness to the unsaved world around us and the greatest healing to our own heart is when we sing praise in the midst of our pain. When we live with the knowledge that whatever we are going through, whatever is happening to us, can be used for God's glory. And whatever it is, sickness, illness, addiction, even death, will not have the final word on us when we submit our lives to God. Paul didn't choose to get flogged or to land in the inner sanctums of a Roman prison. But Paul remembered what it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Paul claimed that. And so he's praising God in this prison. And then in verse 26, we, we pick up, it says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners are listening. And then this earthquake rocks the foundation, and the chains come loose. The jailer draws his sword and is going to, to, to commit suicide because he knows that he will, he will be put to death for letting a prisoner escape. But Paul shouts, don't harm yourself, we're all here. See, the, circumstance, the circumstances said escape, but love told Paul and Silas to stay for the sake of this one soul. Paul and Silas realized that the lives of others were more important than their own freedom and comfort. And it's important for us to realize that our rights are not as important as our obedience to the will of God. The earthquake had nothing to do with freeing Paul and Silas, as we'll see them be released the very next day. But it had everything to do with the salvation of a certain prison guard, most, most likely a retired Roman soldier. The jailer calls for lights. He falls trembling in front of them, and he asks the ultimate life question, what must I do to be saved? They explain the way of salvation. The jailer believes he takes them to his place, he feeds them, he doctors their wounds, cares for them, 
and he and his entire household were baptized. The next day, the magistrates ordered them to be released. And only then, Paul tells them and claims his Roman citizenship and demands an apology and a public escort out of the prison. I don't know why he waited until then to claim that. Maybe he didn't have a chance to. Or maybe the Holy Spirit kept him from doing so. But whatever the case, when he does, when he does claim Roman citizenship, the magistrates become alarmed because they realize that they had broken Roman law by beating them without a fair trial. And so the magistrates uh, did as Paul asked. They came and, and apologized and escorted them out and asked them to leave the city. Certainly, by doing so at that time, Paul set the, Phili- the church in Philippi up for success because the Romans would be friendly toward them knowing that they had done wrong by Paul and Silas. In verse 40, we see, After Paul and Silas came out of prison... They went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. When they came to Philippi, there were no brothers and sisters. When they left, a church had begun, and the first three people impacted by the gospel in Europe represented the entire socioeconomic spectrum. You had Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman who was hospitable and probably had a large network. Then you had a demon-possessed slave girl who was at the bottom of the class system, but who had had a wonderful story to tell. As my friend Stacy Losher says, our tests become our testimony, or our mess becomes our message. You had Lydia at the top, a demon-possessed slave girl at the bottom, and then you had a middle-class Roman soldier who saw the power of God displayed not only in a mighty earthquake, but also in two humble men who praised God in the midst of some really crummy circumstances. And remember that verse in Isaiah, that God's ways are higher than our ways. See, big results come from small actions. Not easy actions, just small actions. Acts 16 is the account of when the gospel first came to Europe. And some pretty amazing things in the the history of Christianity have come through Europe. We won't go into all of those today, but there's been numerous saints and martyrs. The Europeans are the ones that preserved many or most of the Christian holy sites. Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation began in Europe. Many great theologians and preachers and Christian writers and thinkers, and even in our own history, Alexander Campbell came from Europe. Big results require little choices, and the best little choice that you can make is to surrender yourself to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and to follow his guidance one step at a time. With that, God can do great things. This past week, my friends Mark and Maria Moore, former members, came over, and we were talking, they live in Chicago, we were talking about their life, and we began to talk about O'Hare Airport. O'Hare Airport is actually named after a naval aviator named Butch O'Hare, who on February 20th, 1942, became the U.S. Navy's first flying ace and Medal of Honor recipient in World War II. You see, he started out on a mission, and he realized that, that his plane hadn't been topped, uh, topped off with gas. He radioed back to the ship, and they ordered him to return. He hated to do so, but he turned, and he left his squadron who went on about their mission. But as he was heading back to the aircraft carrier, he saw nine Japanese bombers coming to hit the unprotected fleet. He realized that 
it would be sheer destruction for them because all the fighting planes had gone. So instead of turning and, and running and turning and, and flying for his own safety, he decided to engage them. He went straight for them. And in the course of a great dogfight, he shot down five of those Japanese bombers and severely uh, wounded a sixth. At that point, the others turned and fled, and the fleet was saved. <clears throat> His single action had a huge impact and big results because he saved the lives of thousands of people back on those ships that were unprotected. They would go home and have careers after the war. They would raise children and grandchildren because of his selfless act. A year later, he would go down in another dogfight, but he would die a hero because he died for our country. It's a great story, but it's made even more powerful because Butch went down in a blaze of gunfire the same way that his dad had died in the blaze of machine gun fire on the streets of Chicago several years earlier. You see, Butch was his nickname. His real name was Edward Henry O'Hare, and his dad was Edgar Joseph O'Hare, known as Easy Eddie to his friends, whose courageous act changed his son's life, whose courageous act changed the lives of thousands. Big results require small actions. Paul and Silas didn't pout or give up when things didn't go their way. They simply acted obediently to the Holy Spirit and took the next step. As a result, Christianity moved into Europe, and the rest is history. Interestingly enough, according to the Jewish teachings found in the Talmud, Jewish men, like Paul and Silas, were taught to pray a prayer that went something like this. God, I thank you that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. <laughs> Funny, the first three people impacted by the gospel on the continent of Europe were a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. God's ways are higher than our ways. So may we dream big in 2024, but may we build those dreams by putting them in God's hands and following him one step at a time. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much that your mercies are new every morning and that because of Jesus' sacrifice, in spite of all of our failures and shortcomings, we can stand blameless before you. Lord, give us the courage to dream big for 2024, whether it's to take better care of our own bodies or to improve our minds or to face demons of addiction or to work on broken relationships or to get to know you better to share your love with those in our lives. Whatever our goals and resolutions may be, may we bring them before you and attempt them for your glory, not ours. And may we have the courage to dream big, but the wisdom and the strength to take baby steps, one step at a time in obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.